Hi, I'm Liana Downey, founder of Common Ground on Climate, and I think we can be having better conversations about Australia's future, conversations that bring us together to protect what we have. On this podcast, we're talking to a wide range of people to understand more about where we are, how we got here, and we're on the hunt for one big idea to safeguard Australia's environmental and economic future that we can all get behind. So join us and let's build common ground on climate together. I'm here today with Professor Stuart White, the Director of the Institute for Sustainable Futures at UTS, and we'll talk a little bit more about what that is and what he does. He's also on the board of the Australian Alliance for Energy Productivity and Climate, KIC Australia. You'll have to explain what that means for us. And he's won the Eureka Prize for Environmental Research, which is a prize uh, that comes from the Australian Museum. Stuart, it's really lovely to have you here today. Thank you. I want to start with a question that I ask everybody, which is if you could wave a magic wand, what would Australia look and feel like in 20 years' time? Australia has such potential. So in 20 years, we would assume and hope that we have 100% renewable energy in terms of our energy needs, because we're blessed with such amazing assets in terms of solar energy and renewable energy resources. We have a huge opportunity to move beyond being a dig it up and ship it out country to being a country that relies upon education, knowledge and innovation, which we actually have a great deal of if we nurtured it more and supported it more. So we would leverage our green assets and our generally historically egalitarian approach would be encouraged and supported. So we'd have improved equity. We we don't need to move in the direction of some other countries with huge inequity in wealth distribution. We have a huge amount of wealth, the potential for us to reap more from our assets in terms of a future fund, education, skills. If we nurtured those, we would have a society which was even more equal, much more redistributing wealth and emphasising education and high-quality knowledge industries, as well as leveraging off the green assets that we have. It sounds like a, a lovely place to be. I'd love to know a little bit more about what you're working on at the moment. I've been with the Institute for Sustainable Futures for over 20 years, and the Institute uh, works across a range of sustainability areas, and that's one of its strengths because it's very hard to separate the different issues. If you start to look at energy, then you need to think about resources. Where are we going to get the lithium from? Where will it end up? What happens to the old solar panels, etc.? So we need to think about the integration between the different areas on which we work. What about low-income countries? Will they be left behind? So we have a major program in international development and how to improve uh, the lives of the poorest of the poor. And so I've worked on most of those areas in my career and I think having as the institute does a systems view of the world and say everything is connected to everything else I know it sounds like a cliche but it's absolutely true in sustainability research and recognizing that brings with it opportunities because if you look at it as a system you can work out as Donella Meadows says what are the leverage points how can we have the most impact by levering on a certain point of the system and that requires you to understand the system but particularly as a system 
My work has been right across energy during the period of the millennium drought. I was particularly involved with water. Energy and climate change have been particularly important, but also recently looking at food and the importance of food and sustainability and diet as one of the emerging issues that we need to pay attention to. So you said you'd been at the Institute, did you say, for more than 20 years? That's correct, yeah. So the Institute's been going for uh, just a little bit longer than that, and uh, we're probably coming into our 23rd year. So it was very early stages of sustainability thinking and even earlier stages of transdisciplinary thinking. So it was quite far-sighted of UTS at that time to be setting up an institute with a name like the Institute for Sustainable Futures. What drew you to that work? What's the story about how you, you found yourself there? I'd always been interested in sustainability by its various names and had actually been involved in sustainable energy issues, sustainable water issues from a long time previously, even when I was going to university. I'd originally done an electrical trade, so I'm actually a qualified electrician and was quite interested in appropriate technology as a result. This is well before photovoltaics were commonplace and renewable energy was as commonplace as it is now, but then went back to university and studied nuclear physics, partly because I was quite strongly opposed to the then Premier of Western Australia's proposal for a nuclear power station in Western Australia. So I thought I'd better understand this if I'm going to criticise it and then moved to Sydney University to work on solar energy, again, very early days of solar thermal energy. So sort of a career looking at application of appropriate technology, but quickly realised that the technology is important and innovation in technology is extremely important, but the most important thing is actually getting the policy settings. The policy arrangements are often what holds back progress in sustainability and in the application of the technology. So we'll come back to that question of policy settings, but I just want to explore a little bit more. What a fascinating journey. So were you working as an electrician and then you decided you wanted to go to uni? It just feels like such a leap from there to studying nuclear physics. That feels like a very different kind of world. You said, oh, I was interested in the application of appropriate technology, but can you just talk a bit more about how you got from A to B and what you mean by that when you say the application of appropriate technology? Yeah, sure. I did my uh, apprenticeship at a major hospital in Western Australia and you get exposed to a wide variety of technology and applications as well as obviously the health system. We were working with power systems, powering a very large hospital, high voltage systems, and it, it led me to think there must be a better way to do what we're doing here in terms of the air conditioning systems, the electrical systems, the supply of energy. And having grown up on a farm, I always had an interest in things mechanical and the environment. And it led then to think, I need to understand this a bit better. So uh, being led into physics was, in a sense, a natural progression. The, the big names in energy, and particularly in energy efficiency, are people who have been involved in physics. And I think you could say it's as simple as the understanding of the second law of thermodynamics and the heat death of the universe. But I think it is more than that. It's a recognition of the elegance of simplicity and the important role that efficiency in particular plays. So my focus has always been on looking at that 
side of how can we improve the efficiency and effectiveness of what we do with the energy resource and then how can we supply that from the renewable means that we have at our disposal which are vastly appropriate and able to solve our needs. A number of the people that I've spoken to have grown up on a farm and it's interesting that there is that common history and interest in this space. Now you, you said it as a very throwaway line for those of us who didn't study nuclear physics, can you just get back to the nub of when you're talking about energy and conservation and the kind of aha moment for you? What did you understand about the way the world worked that made you think there's got to be a better way? It's partly when you look at our current electricity system. Now, electricity is not the entirety of our energy system, but often people mistake it for being all of our energy use. But it's an, historically been an incredibly wasteful system. So thermal energy generation throws away nearly two-thirds of the, the heat. The energy content of the coal or the nuclear fuel, in the case of nuclear power or gas, it throws it away as waste heat. Part of my apprenticeship, I did go on a, a tour of Quinana Power Station. And while being fascinated and in love with the technology and the systems and the processes and the scale of things the abiding lesson I came away with was the the sight of the heat being wasted from the system and thinking about that collie coal that was uh, going up through the cooling tower stacks so I had a, an awareness of the fact that this could be done better and it was frustrating because at that time of course photovoltaics while technically had been demonstrated extremely well those things were out of reach economically at the time. They were for niche applications such as telephone exchanges and the like, but an awareness that technically there was absolutely no reason why we couldn't use these in a more widespread way. But if we were to do so, we absolutely need to improve the efficiency with which we use energy. And this gives us an opportunity to have a much better conversion without the waste and without, of course, the use of fossil fuels which we're now realising many years later is actually seriously problematic. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It reminds me, in third grade, we were required to draw an ecosystem. And I was actually living overseas, and so I drew an Australian ecosystem, which had a, an echidna and a, a koala or something. And I got a good grade, I think mostly because they liked the idea of the cuddly koala. But I was really intrigued by what we were taught as third graders, which is that ecosystems are self-contained, the waste goes into growing. And I remember even at that young age thinking, gee, that's very neat. And why can't we do that as humans? Why do we seem to have these systems where you've got garbage at the end of it instead of feeding the garbage back in like nature does? And realising in some senses that as humans, we still had catching up to do with our thinking in terms of the elegance of design in a way that nature's very good at. So uh, that resonates with me, the sense of we can do better. I don't know that everybody knows the extent to which Australia has been absolutely historically on the leading edge in terms of solar development. Do you want to talk a little bit more about that? And also then, where are we now compared to the rest of the world? Because I know we were right at the leading edge to start. That's a really good question. And it's an absolutely fascinating story. Dunlight, the South Australian company, South Australia, very windy place and obviously well supplied with wind energy currently, developed a factory to make small wind generators for these telephone exchanges. 
And so you think if we had provided the level of support that our colleagues in Denmark provided to their wind industry, and we're talking here the 1950s, then wow. we could be the leading wind generators. They might still be made globally. It's a global market for production in China and elsewhere, but the ownership and the benefits arising from that wind sector could have been Australian. The same with solar thermal for hot water, the typical solar flat plate hot water system that you see on the roofs of houses and in Western Australia were widespread because of the role of Solar Heart and Solar Ream and some other companies that pioneered this, again, coming through from the 50s and well supported by CSIRO scientists at the time. This is the other issue that there was strong government support for that. And while we did excel and indeed they were exported around the world, we probably lost the edge. My PhD was in solar thermal evacuated tubular collectors, so operating a much higher temperature for industry. And again, these were developed in other countries typically. So there was a middle period when we lost the race. The National Energy Research and Development Corporation at the time, or ERDC, as various names it went through, started off as basically a fossil fuel subsidy organisation. And so we went through this middle period where the focus of energy research funding was primarily fossil fuel related, and it wasn't really till the advent of ARENA, the Australian Renewable Energy Agency, and the Clean Energy Finance Corporation that that made a difference. And of course, the renewable energy target itself has made a big difference, such that now Australia, to, in some senses, has caught up. We have some of the lowest cost of installation of solar photovoltaics on houses and the highest adoption rate in percentage terms of solar photovoltaics. It's been a, an amazing success story and of course is transforming the energy industry itself but we've got a long way to go and that's despite all those headwinds that were put in the way it's probably a bit too sad to think what could have been we need to make the most of where we are right now and the huge assets and indeed some of the huge advantages that we have australia has some of the highest rates of startup entrepreneurial companies that work in the energy sector challenging the existing framework. So looking at energy data collection and measurement of data collection, looking at tariff design, looking at integration of interruptibility. So using high-tech principles, we were pleased to be part of the start of Energy Lab, which is a startup dedicated to clean energy and Climate Kick Australia in the innovation space shows that we have huge potential in innovation. And that's actually going to be a limiting factor, the number of entrepreneurs who can actually create the transition fast enough for us. You talked about Denmark in wind. I know that the UK has moved rapidly and aggressively in wind as well. And I've spoken to some people who say that despite the rapid rooftop solar uptake, when you look at countries like Spain and Morocco, who've really set an aspiration to be global leaders in solar and they're thinking more about bigger installations and not just rooftop installations but concentrated solar plants and things like that that we're still not quite as ambitious 
as other countries seem to be. What's your take on that? Is there room for more ambition? Absolutely. Uh, what we're now facing is the ability of the network system and, again, the institutions and policies to integrate sufficiently the large scale, both wind and photovoltaic installations of, of the large type. We've just recently completed the study looking at offshore wind, and there's now increasing interest in initiatives in offshore wind. So we could be starting to catch up with the rest of the world in that sense, some of which is already happening in large onshore wind and large-scale solar installations and now batteries as well, of course. But I think we need a balance between that and what we call the customer side or the demand side. The only way we will get to 100% renewables is if we pay attention to both the demand and the supply side. And paying attention to the demand side means having better interoperability, better control of loads, heat pump hot water systems that can store hot water, which is effectively like a battery, but much cheaper than a battery. Systems to switch off air conditioning compressors just for cycle them in and out for five minutes, which means you can keep just as cool, but it doesn't change much of the energy use, but it does reduce peak demand significantly because that'll be the issue. This uh, duck curve of daily demand, which has reductions in the middle of the day, sometimes going negative in South Australia, and then a very steep climb as the sun starts to go down. So we need to pay attention to shifting the load, having more flexible loads, using smarts in the system to basically manage that in order to enable the cheapest outcome and particularly to enable 100% renewables. You use the term interoperability. Can you talk a bit more about what that means in this context? Yeah, so we need to make sure that all of the sources of energy, which have become already much more complex and widespread, so it's not one large power station in the Hunter or the Trove Valley supplying one large demand centre in Sydney or Melbourne, but it's now a much more complicated system. So we need to make sure that the measurement of energy, whether it's in the local neighbourhood at the zone substation, whether it be at the household or whether it be at the high voltage transmission coming from a major wind farm at Broken Hill, all of those systems need to be interoperable so that we can manage a much more complex system. And that's actually causing a barrier now. It's a barrier that should be able to be overcome very quickly if we pay enough attention to it. And we certainly don't want it to be an excuse for delay in our 100% renewable target. There are technical challenges to be overcome, but there are particularly policy and institutional challenges to be overcome as well. So that means that the systems need to be able to speak to each other, share Absolutely. information and, and share resources. So my understanding, for those people who might remember, there was really unseasonable cold weather in Texas, lots of snow, and a bit of a kind of debate, some people saying, oh, it's because we've all moved to renewables. But my understanding when you actually looked into the issue was part of the challenge was that Texas had privatised a lot of these assets and they not only didn't talk to their neighbours, they couldn't get energy from other states, neighbouring states, but also within the system, those assets weren't talking to each other, which is interesting because, it, it, again, it gets back to your question about policy. So the issue is not so much that couldn't have happened, it was just that the way that they'd been set up was it was 
every asset for itself. Each asset was privatised and trying to make the most amount of money. And the other thing that happened was because there weren't policy settings regulating prices, they could just go through the roof. And so there were these sort of crazy spikes. And what I'm hearing from you is that as you're transitioning to a different kind of system, somebody needs to be thinking about it. Somebody needs to be thinking about what might happen and planning accordingly and thinking about, okay, if we do have a hot snap or a cold snap or we do have a big surge in demand for one reason or another, how do we make sure that the system is resilient as the system is changing? And what you've talked about as well is that because as you move to renewable sources, particularly solar, they're patchy, peaky. So there's, as you said, heat in the middle of the day, you get a lot of sun, you get a lot of energy and not everybody's using that energy because they're in normal times off at the office or whatever, not at home using their air conditioning. So it's the planning. Is that right? That's absolutely right. And uh, indeed, the Texas case, it was demonstrated very clearly. It wasn't uh, a problem with the wind. It was providing just as much renewable energy as it was expected to. It was much more, as you say, a policy failure and overemphasis on markets and the benefits of certain incumbents. And a lack of, as you say, interoperability and particularly the ability to shift energy around. We can be smug in Australia, but similar issues have occurred in terms of you have hot days in South Australia and it's, it's not just the lack of transmission capacity between South Australia and the rest of Australia. It's also that we don't have in place systems in order to cycle air conditioning systems in the way I described earlier or to cycle in and out other flexible loads. We need to be much cleverer with the system. There's a lot that can be done on the demand side even before we start to build major transmission infrastructure, which you know, may also be an important part of the puzzle. Yeah, that makes sense. I want to go back to something that you touched on when you were talking about the group that were primarily fossil fuel subsidy at that point in time. One of the interesting conversations I've had with some people who've said, look, I'm happy to use renewables as long as the government's not subsidising them, which is a really interesting kind of line. It comes from an anxiety about economic growth, I think. And, and in Australia, we've been told that there's a sort of inherent tension that you can either protect the environment or you can have an economic growth and, and these two are not compatible. So I think there's two interesting things. That's a myth that's been busted. There are a lot of countries who've been able to separate their GDP growth and their emissions growth. It's not the case that you have to keep spewing out more greenhouse gas emissions as you grow. Countries like the UK and other countries have separated those two things out and other big states like California. But the other thing which is really interesting is the sort of misunderstanding that somehow there's been no subsidisation of fossil fuels. <laughs> Do you want to talk a little bit about that and your understanding of um, both historic subsidies for coal and, and, and gas, but also current subsidies for coal and gas that are still mm. in the system? Yeah, it's such a, a good question and such a big question as well, because it touches on so many elements. And there's just been the direct historical support for the fossil fuel industry. In fact, the predecessor to the Energy Research Development Corporation and the National Energy Research and Demonstration Council and, and so on, all of these predecessors to the energy research funding bodies in Australia, I think it was actually the Liquid Fuels Board. So it was actually about how to 
develop prospective liquid fuels in Australia, oil, basically, which is in, a, in the Australian context has come and gone. We may be a natural gas powerhouse, but we were once quite a large supplier of oil as well. That's where the focus was. So that's a, a massive direct cash subsidy to the sector. And there are still really strong elements of that in funding for carbon sequestration. But at least nowadays, it's balanced somewhat by ARENA funding and Clean Energy Finance Corp. So there is some funding for renewables, as well as of the obvious policy shift for providing the renewable energy target and the certificates that actually provided that support. Now, historically, of course, we haven't had, except for a brief period, uh, a price on carbon. And every sensible economist will tell us that we should, because there's a demonstrable externality. There is consensus amongst the world scientific community that there is a large and significant cost associated with climate change, which should be reflected in the things which contribute to it, not just energy, but in terms of land use and food and agriculture and so on. So that's a massive subsidy across the entire globe and, of course, in Australia. So that, that's two elements of subsidy. One is the direct cash subsidy. The second is the missing externality tax on the products, which is the, the impact on the environment. The third element is the massive historical public subsidy that occurs for all innovation public support for an innovation which we just take for granted and almost every single innovation of that kind has that sort of public subsidy either through the university system through research that's done supported by governments and usually then left for private sector development sometimes of course a lot of times it goes offshore so we need to pay attention to that as well for somebody to say I'd use renewable energy if it wasn't subsidised by government. They should stop using Wi-Fi as well. They should stop using their mobile phone and, and so on. All of these other things that have had massive uh, government, if, if not Australian, then other government subsidies. And their gas heater. Um, yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's. I think that's really interesting. I think the other thing that's interesting, you talked about so many economists will say there should be a price on carbon. And I've been talking to a lot of economists about exactly that question. It is a very consistent message. I think the other thing that we don't necessarily think about is that there are other examples like that. And the one that probably is easiest for people to grasp onto is the fact that we tax cigarettes at a very high rate. And the reason we tax cigarettes at a very high rate is because the public health system bears the cost of people who have lung cancer as a result. And we know that there's a massive cost, not just in terms of the health system looking after and caring for those people, but also the loss when people die at a younger age than they should. It means they're not being economically productive, as well as, of course, the kind of personal cost. Governments generally like to keep their citizens alive as long as possible. And so that's an example. And again, I think in a way, not a totally different example in that there was science and research and then there was a lot of investment by industry to say, are we sure? Can you really be sure? Until there was a, a kind of a whole lot of litigation that said, yes, we're really sure. And it stacks up in a court of law. That's been a long and complicated journey that's taken place over decades. And we're 
in the middle of a similar journey, I think, at the moment where there's been a lot of, can you be sure, a lot of doubt raising. And as you said, not all countries have settled on pricing something. It's interesting because on tobacco, Australia leads the world. I've worked overseas and had uh, international colleagues be very envious of our our policies and our, our leadership because they've been very effective in saving a lot of lives, but we're not as aggressive on pricing greenhouse gases, as you say. So we've talked about policy and the, the importance of policy. And obviously in your role, as you said, you're stepping back and thinking about kind of the whole system a lot. If you were prime minister for a day and you could put in place two policies, what would they be? What were the ones that you think would really protect and safeguard Australia's future? I think getting the economics right would have to be part of that. Correcting what is essentially a market failure. And and as you just described, it's not unprecedented. We should tax bads and nuisances rather than goods and services. So switching the tax burden in order to both achieve the taxing of bads and nuisances and relieving the burden on goods and services and improving equity at the same time, which interestingly, the carbon tax brought in by the previous government was aimed to do because it actually removed a million people from the tax system essentially by raising the tax-free threshold. So a million more people didn't have to do a tax return as a result of that movement of funding from goods and services to bads and nuisances. So that would be a, a pretty clear winning formula. Of course, the politics of that are fraught, (laughs) as was demonstrated. And I think there's something about the way we need to implement those things to bring the community along uh, with it and obviously try and work out how to fix a political system that can allow good public policy debate, whether it be about a resources rent tax, which is a sort of a similar argument or whether it be about carbon pricing, it needs to be the subject of appropriate ways of engaging in public debate. So that would probably be the second thing, would be to embed the principles of deliberative democracy into our decision-making system. And there's precedent for this, and I've been a long supporter of the New Democracy Foundation, which advocates for these innovative approaches of using random selection of citizens in a deliberative way, So random selection can be a poll, which we know can be ineffective, or a survey, a random selection of citizens brought together to deliberate, supported by appropriate information and knowledge to then inform and preferably influence public policy is the gold standard of democratic processes. And we're a fair way from that. We've had a few instances of success with systems like that, but we could have a lot more and following trends that have been set in various places around the world, including Australia, to do that. So if I'm understanding correctly, it would be the implementation of a a different approach to, to democracy, which engages a broader range of citizens with more information, more time to help with decision making. And then you would also put some kind of a price on greenhouse gas emissions? In the order you just described and not the order I described, because <laughs> I think it, it would be a prerequisite in, a, in our current political system, unfortunately, with the recent memories of the fate of the carbon pricing scheme, I think we would uh, need to 
either do both in parallel, like you need to fix our political system through approaches and methods like that in order to be able to bring in the kind of reforms that we need. And we, we've seen that time and again, like I say, the resources rent tax, such a logical, sensible policy that Norwegians have in place and many other countries that we weren't able to do in Australia, again, because of a broken political system, as well as carbon price, which is absolutely sensible baseline policy measure. So we would need some other improvement and reform for the political system to achieve things like that. As you're talking, I'm thinking about something that's come up in a lot of these conversations, which is communication. And as I said, I've been having a lot of conversations with economists recently about policy. And one of the great challenges when you talk to an economist is trying to frame things in ways that are easily understood. And it happens to all of us in our respective disciplines. We get very familiar with the jargon and the language. Sensible policy, but not understood and actually understood with a really different implication. I think a lot of people in Australia actually felt that they personally were being taxed rather than understanding that there was a tax on big polluters and on the source of pollution. And it just wasn't understood. So it's kind of a bad sales job, which all comes down to communication. And it's actually something that's come up time and time again. When you talk about climate change, people say it's complicated. And as a way, that's almost an excuse for not investing the time to communicate those ideas clearly. So I'm wondering, is communication something that you think about in the sustainability space at UTS? Is that one of the disciplines at the table? Yeah, it's absolutely a crucial component of it. And one of the tenets of the deliberative democracy is that while we can underestimate the knowledge of ordinary citizens, we should never underestimate their ability to make judgments. And that informs the idea of uh, deliberative democracy, randomly selected citizens. And I was privileged to be one of the table facilitators for the uh, deliberative poll, which is a, an approximation of one of these processes which occurred about whether Australia should become a republic. So before the referendum. So it was held before the referendum and it was uh, a statistically uh, significant sample. Over 300 people brought together, randomly selected from all over Australia. So I was in a small group with someone who was a, a surfer from Newcastle and a truck driver and a, a medical receptionist and an engineer. So just a, a random selection, half men, half women. And they were grappling with serious constitutional issues <laughs> you know, with the Australian constitution and processes of selection and formulating questions in multiple uh, small groups. So we had small groups of you know, typically 10. And it was fascinating to see people from all walks of life grappling with these complex issues. They're able to ask questions in their own terms and have them answered and discuss with one another, take off their hat of self-interest, put on the hat of citizen rather than individual consumer. And that's what we need to achieve. And now you can't always achieve that. That's a very intensive exercise. So we need to be able to achieve that through improved communications. And that's a crucial part of what we do, how to position the arguments for where people currently are is absolutely crucial. It's not easy to achieve, but I've seen it work. And incidentally, the outcome, as many people will know, 
of that referendum, that deliberative poll was exactly the opposite of the referendum result that subsequently occurred because people had had a chance to engage with and understand and look at the issues and ask questions. Yeah, it's interesting because I've heard that described also as a citizen jury, which makes sense. We have that model to make a determination about whether somebody's guilty or not. And we don't say that you have to be an expert in criminal justice or whatever the particular circumstances are. We trust that when you get a group of people together and you give them time and information and they're a diverse group of people, they can come to a reasonable judgment. But as you say, we actually don't do that with really big political decisions. We let that sit on the whole, except if we're doing a referendum, but we let that sit with a small number of elected officials who may or may not be engaging with us in the same way. And I think what was interesting, I've spent time in government, what I would say is interesting is we actually ask a lot of our politicians too in that very often they are also coming to a topic that is very new to them and being expected to make quite big decisions in, in short order. I had always assumed that the way it would work is that there would be this sort of frank and fearless advice from the bureaucracy who really deeply knew the subject and the outcomes, what do we want to achieve, would be articulated by the politicians and then the bureaucracy would come up with the ideas. But in my experience, it's not quite the way it works. The expectation is more that the politicians will come up with a policy, which is often really hard. And there's this interesting thing where we're expecting a very small number of people rather than engaging a broader, more diverse set of people with the space and time to ask the questions and have those questions answered before they can come to a decision or a recommendation. Very interesting idea. What are you worried about with where we are now? What keeps you awake at night? The most obvious thing that's worrying is the race against time, essentially, with some of the trends and while it is still possible to interrupt and turn around some of the worst manifestations, the most obvious being climate change, but if you include biodiversity loss, uh, resource usage and equity, if you include the broad range of trends, then in a sense, we are racing against time. Countering that is that we always assume that the bad things will happen in a non-linear fashion. We think, oh, it'll spiral out of control and, and feedback loops will be our enemy, not our friend. But those feedback loops can be our friend as well as our enemy in the sense that uh, we can have a non-linear response to solve problems. And we've seen that happen in several occasions. And we do have some small success stories that we see either around the world or even in large global issues, such as the ozone layer and chlorofluorocarbons, for example, as a success story with global implications. So we see all these trends is the worry that we won't be able to react fast enough or that the nonlinear processes won't kick in for the prevention or healing is the main thing. Is there anything that you're particularly excited about that you're working on at the moment? Probably the area that's been neglected and has in historically been a bit controversial is food, diet and sustainability. So very interested in looking at the global implications of changes in diet and what would be required to change that. And there's not enough attention being paid, certainly not in Australia. There is in Europe that's becoming much more standard to 
say, yes, food, diet, sustainability, these are related, we need to pay attention to it, we need to do something. Whereas in Australia, it's still a little bit difficult to make those statements because it's more controversial, partly because of our agricultural base. But we do need to pay attention to it in order to have a soft landing on climate as well as other dimensions, whether it's health, obesity, animal rights, uh, a whole range of issues that intersect when you look at food. Yeah, it's a tough one because diet is so personal. And I think one of the things that I hear expressed a lot when people are reluctant to have policy action on climate change, it's that you greenies want to take stuff away from me. You want to take my air conditioning and my comfort and my barbecue away from me. What's your response to that? What What is the changes that you see coming for people? I, I guess the response is that this is happening anyway. So the market is moving as we see with consumption of animal products in most high income countries is uh, plateauing and reducing as people become more aware of the health. Yes, that is a, a response and, a, and it is controversial because of it's not just threatening some you know, large and powerful industries, but it's also threatening people's sense of identity in some cases. But I guess we need to look and say, well, we could also be taking your cardiovascular disease away from you. And we could also be taking away a whole lot of other outcomes that might be quite useful for us to pay attention to. And there's a lot of uh, pretty reputable studies that show those links that we've pushed beyond where we should go with these things. And we need to start pulling that curve way back down for global benefit, obviously climate change, whether it's scarcity of phosphorus as a nutrient fertilizer or methane emissions, but also because the implications for health of people are quite profound. Yeah. So it's back to where we used to be a bit more of a balance. We need to turn this curve back around and uh, no one's going to uh, have lifestyle suffer as a result of that. We've shot past the point that we were in previous years. So it's a question of uh, starting to move back down that curve. Stuart, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you today. Thank you so much for your time and for all the work that you're doing. Thanks, Liana.